Welcome to the Creative South Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Frostholm. Today, I talk with Dominique Fala, founder of Typism. We talk about her winding career path, tactile typography, how forming good creative habits and improving your creative fitness helps you avoid burnout, and more, all right after this. I want to thank our friends over at Jack Prince for sponsoring this episode. Whatever you need printed, they can do it. From business cards to banners to t-shirts and even socks. Whatever you need, Jack Prince can print it. Right now, Jack Prince is offering these great deals. Business cards as low as $33. Custom banners starting at $23. 25% off all over printed shirts and socks. Jack Prince makes great, affordable stuff for designers like you and I. They focus on quality and customer service and have been loyal Creative South sponsors for years. Why not pick them next time you need stickers, banners, or pocket notebooks printed? Plus, Jack Prince is giving Creative South podcast listeners 25% off all orders over $25 when you use promo code CREATESOUTH17 at checkout. Visit jackprince.com for your next order of stickers, prints, or whatever you need today. We all secretly, and some of us openly, know that we have a deep love for stickers. Whenever we go to Creative South, we come home with a massive sticker haul and we feel like kids again. But why do we have to wait another year for this feeling? Luckily, Slaptastic can give you that feeling each and every month, direct to your mailboxes. Each month, you'll receive a pack of six limited edition theme stickers that you can enjoy and share with your friends and family. Head on over to www.slaptastic.com slash CS17 and sign up today with a special offer just for you. We've gone through and streamlined the Creative South Podcast Patreon page, cleaning out the excess and making it easier for you to support us. With options starting at just $1 per month, you can help support the podcast and even wind up with some cool Creative South Podcast swag. Every dollar helps cover hosting costs, upgrade equipment, and keep the podcast going. When you become a Creative South patron, You'll get access to exciting Creative South news before anyone else. Creative South podcast stickers and t-shirts. So, please help support the podcast and become a patron over at patreon.com slash creative south. Awesome. Let's go. All right. Dominique, thank you for uh, joining me from 13 hours in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wish I could send you back the um, the lottery numbers, but I can't. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be it. Well, it would help if I lived in a state that had a lottery. So, <laughs> Right. Yes. <laughs> it makes it tough when you don't live in one. But yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> um, so let, let's kind of start off how I always do. Where did you grow up? I'm, I'm sure people are going to recognize that you don't have a southern accent or a midwestern <laughs> accent or anything like that no i don't i don't have the um the the, the standard accent of your uh, regular guests but i also didn't have this accent when i grew up either so really? i was born on the south south coast of the uk so i was born in brighton mm-hmm. and um and so i used to talk like that a bit you know more like english and it was a bit bath and laugh and so when I emigrated to Australia, I had to Australianize, mate, and get pretty Aussie pretty quick. Otherwise, um, high school became fairly torturous as an experience if you spoke funny. So well, I, isn't high I school just a torturous experience to begin with? That's right. And so arriving late and talking funny and being incredibly pale and white, all of these things had to be gotten rid of very quickly. So I acclimatized to high school in Australia very quickly. So... My parents emigrated when I was 12, mm-hmm. and we went to Melbourne. And so Melbourne is on the south coast of Australia, and I now live on the east coast in a town called Byron Bay because I met my husband when I was on holiday and moved to much warmer weather. So I've moved <laughs> around a fair bit. <laughs> gotcha. But, um, yeah, born in, born in England, high school in Melbourne, and now grown up in Byron Bay. Well, that, that, that's interesting that at 12 you kind of, I mean, I, I understand the necessity to pick up the uh, accent and all that. Because I, I moved around a lot as a kid and I'm, I'm from the Midwest, but I've been in the South since I was about eh, about 13. And I don't, ha- I mean, you may hear a Southern accent, but I, n- no one around here hears a Southern accent in my voice. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think, I mean, that's probably more common in in America, though. I seem to 
everyone I meet always tells a story of how they grew up here and then they lived a few years over here and mm. now they're living here. They seem to, because there are many more cities to choose from in the United States, sure. the, the, the ability to move around to somewhere completely different and still have a fairly, you know, sort of high functioning lifestyle seems more, there's more opportunity there than in Australia. Whereas we have, you know, sort of Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth are your mm. major cities and then everything else is regional. And so, you know, you might want to live in Byron Bay <laughs> like I do, but <laughs> there's not that many opportunities for employment. So people tend to stay in one of those four cities. And even Perth is miles away. So nobody, I've never even been there. It's half, it's it's the other side of the world as far as the East Coast is concerned. It's like, um, it's probably at the same distance as flying from LA to New York. It's just, you know, unless you've got a reason to go there, people kind of tend not to. Well, I was about to say, Australia is about the size of the United States, like geographically. So, but everybody uh-huh. lives on the coast. Nobody lives in the middle. Yeah, that's right. There's there's Alice Springs and there's um, a lot of desert. And then even all of Western Australia is, is quite a lot of desert. So yeah, and then people a really tend big to live rock. around. Yeah, there's quite a few big rocks, but one in particular that you <laughs> lot would all know. Um, but yeah, we tend to huddle around the edges and get as close to the ocean as possible. Gotcha. Well, I can't blame you there. The ocean's nice. <laughs> yeah, and we've got we've got a very nice bit of it. Um, I live yeah, Byron Bay is a, a seaside tourist destination, so we have a lot of surfers come here, and we have a lot of tourists come here. So it's a very beautiful part of the world, gotcha. and the beach is very much part of that. Yeah. Gotcha. So when you were growing up, were you an artistic kid, or? Yep. Um, I attribute a lot of what I do to the fact I was an only child. So my uh-huh. parents had one kid and um so I had to spend a lot of time entertaining myself Mm -hmm. because you know from what I understand I talk to people and you know they spend most of their time trying to get away from their siblings or throw things at them or blame them for something or you know um, that would be my experience have have wars (laughs) and battles and fights and build tree forts and you know there was a lot of everyone I speak to has a rough and tumble outdoorsy love hate relationship with their siblings and I didn't have any of that so it was just Mm -hmm. me um, entertaining myself. And so craft and art and drawing were very much ways that I would do that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I liked horse riding and, and getting outside as well, but, but most of the time I entertained myself by making things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my grandparents and my parents would kind of encourage this. So they would get me craft materials and they would buy me books on how to make things. And so I would work my way through those craft books and learn all the different skills. So it, at the time, I might not have known that it was, you know, might have led to a career. It certainly was just a way sure. to entertain myself. Well, not a lot of twelve-year-olds are thinking of their career. <laughs> well, no, these days they do. I, I was, know, yeah. Talking to someone, and they were saying they were speaking to a twelve-year-old dancer who was concerned that they weren't going to be able to make any money dancing. I'm like, holy moly, that's not what you should be thinking when you're twelve. You should be just dancing. And yeah, I think it's a different world. But no, maybe when when I was twelve, definitely not. It's just about having fun. <laughs> True. I'm concerned for my kids because they have been stuck on the same career path since they were three. So they one wants well, that's to be good. a pa- that might be- <laughs> well. One wants to be a paleontologist, um, but shows no interest in dinosaurs really. Um, oh, like Sounds yes. good on the business Yes, card. and the other one wants to be a race car driver. <laughs> well, don't we all? That's definitely one of one of my <laughs> career paths that I didn't follow, but should have. Yeah, that's um, yeah, no, funny. I, I mean, I sort of spoke about that in my Creative South talk. Was mm-hmm. about you know the fact that I wanted to be a vet or a geologist or an astronaut until I worked out what that actually meant. You have to spend your day doing, and it didn't sure. sound like any fun at all. I don't know. Astronaut so still just, sounds fun to me. Yeah, no, the whole not breathing thing worries me, especially with all these movies like Gravity and things where, you know, it's all about just asphyxiation. I don't want to, I don't want to get out there and run out of things to breathe. So I'll stay down here. <laughs> I, I, I can understand that. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were going through school, were you taking art classes as well? Or were you just kind of, you know, self-taught on your own? Like when you were going through like high school and stuff like that? Yeah, um, I spent... I had, a, I had a strange high school experience because I actually got quite a serious um, spinal condition. And so I spent that middle school year when you're 15, mm-hmm. 14, 15, I spent sort of in hospital and in recovery. And the hospital I was at actually had a really good sort of art program. And so whilst my high school didn't have a very good art program, I was encouraged in that sort of 
impressionable age to be creative and make things because they would bring in this sort of art therapist to work with the long-term patients because we, you know, we were very bored and we were all young children and we needed a lot of entertaining. And so they, they actually had quite an active art program in the hospital. And so, you know, we would make, I made a clay piggy bank whilst lying on my back in a hospital mm. bed. So, you know, we used to do drawings and I used to, um, somebody gave me a Walkman, if you remember what they were. Yeah, and I, so I, would li- <laughs> I would lie there and listen to in excess tapes. And then when I got out of hospital, I just spent all my time drawing the members of in excess. <laughs> um, <laughs> big big fan good. of Michael Hutchins. No, well, John Farris was my ah. cup of tea. He was the drummer. Um, but, you know, I would draw all of their beautiful faces and I would draw all of their album covers and I would just, you know, so I dedicated my teenage years to um, in excess and, and, and creating <laughs> visuals of them in any way I could. And so that really, I think, um, was my sort of art training. And then I, I went and took art and graphics and all those sorts of subjects in the later years of high school when you had a choice. Mm-hmm. And so my final graduating year was 50% physics, maths subjects, because I was actually quite good at those. And I think I was hedging my bets. Sure. And then it was also music, graphics and art. So I did 50-50. Gotcha. And when, when you get out of high school, do you go to university or do you kind of wander about trying to find your way for a little while? No, I definitely went to university. I um, In my final year of high school, when it comes time to choose which university you want to apply to, mm-hmm. um, I actually found there's a there was a secondhand bookshop near where I lived, and I would go there and spend many hours just poking and rummaging through. And I found a little graduate catalog, which was $4. I remember it was written in pencil, $4 <laughs> in the corner. And it was from Swinburne Institute of Technology at the time. When I graduated, it became a university. But Swinburne happened to be in the same state that I lived, and so it mm. was you know, accessible to me. And so from that moment on, when I found that graduate catalogue and saw all the work in the catalogue, I decided that this is absolutely what I wanted to do. And it just so happened that a friend of mine who I went through high school with, his mother was actually a student in the program that I wanted to go to. So I you know, bought her a nice bottle of wine and went round to her house and interrogated her deeply because the the interview process was quite arduous and you had to really, you know, a lot of people wanted to get into this course and they didn't accept everybody. So she coached me through the interview process and I genuinely think I would not have got into that course <laughs> if it hadn't have been for her coaching because when I was in the interview, they one of the teachers said to me, you sound like me talking to my students, which of course he thought was miraculous and therefore I belonged in this program whereas actually I'd literally got it from the horse's mouth <laughs> what I should say. and so yeah I got in and I did four years of um, graphic design training at Swinburne University in Melbourne mm-hmm. um, it was a very back then it was it was free um, these days the the universities are, are you know paid for by government loans like much like the states mm-hmm. but I was one of the final years to go through where it was a you know, a kind of entry and acceptance, and then they sort of would whittle down the numbers. So 120 students were accepted into first year. They would cull the number to 60 for second year, mm-hmm. cull it again to 30 for third year, and then cull it again to just 12 graduates in fourth year with a degree. And so we were all very – I mean, I had PTSD by the end of that experience. I, I can imagine. It was <laughs> – every year you would wait for that axe to swing if you weren't in the top um, group. So – no, what what happens if you don't make the cut? Do you basically switch majors and? No, you go and work in retail. Goodbye. Thanks oh, for, um, Thanks for trying. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty stressful and some really good students, you know. But if if we can only accept thirty into third year and you're the thirty second, you might be a pretty good student. And these mm. days, you would have no problem going on and being a graphic design graduate. But just the the structure of the program was such that because they were fully funded places, they had to get rid of the numbers just to keep the government you know, or keep profitable, I guess. So, sure. and the, their reputation was very much that they produced the best graduates. So mm. the university did the vetting. And so it meant that industry just would literally employ whoever survived that process because they'd been pre, pre-tested by the university themselves. Whereas these days it's, you know, we'll accept 120 students and we graduate 120 <laughs> students. It's, it's a much, it's a much easier route through university but then obviously the the bloodthirstiness begins when you're a graduate you're having to fight for the jobs Mm -hmm. whereas I didn't have that experience we had to fight for the university degree 
And then once we got out, we were employable entities as far as the industry was concerned. Sure. So you, you get out of college. What do you, what do you, what do you do then? Well, in my final few months of college, our, we had a, a sessional teacher, so that meant that he wasn't employed by the university full-time. He was brought in as a sort of contracted expert. Sure. His name was Keith McEwen, and he was a um, you know, reasonably kind of well-known illustrator at the time. And so he really influenced a lot of the final year group to become quite illustrative-focused. Mm. Um, and he actually kind of brought in a competition for us all to enter, which was a Macmillan children's book competition. And so, you know, six of us kind of came top six in that competition because we were all kind of coached by Keith. Mm. But I actually won the competition, which meant that my my book idea was going to be produced by Macmillan. Um, in the end, they passed on the project but sold it to Omnibus Books. And so it meant that, you know, straight out of university, I had a two-year major project to create a book. Mm-hmm. And that book was called Woodlaw, and it um it actually got shortlisted in a very you know the kind of national Australian children's book prize, sure. and so that meant that for a while I got kind of known as a children's book illustrator. So whether I wanted to be one or not, that's <laughs> that's what fate decided. <laughs> well, you um, said, I'm assuming <laughs> based on the way that you said that you didn't really want to be a uh, children's book illustrator. Well, there's no money in it. It's a very it's it's you're subsidizing the publishing industry by volunteering all, all of your time to make them beautiful images that they then sell for very small amounts of money. Sure. Um, so yeah, it was not the most profitable start into my professional career, but it meant that I got a lot of experience as a freelancer straight away. So um, all of the kind of stuff I'm doing now, I think I'm very you know well versed in in the life of a freelancer because I had that experience. And it was so traumatic that I kind of have dedicated my life now to trying to re- release that trauma from the rest of the new generations of, of self-employed people because, you know, it was just – it was so hard in terms of just trying to make a living doing what you love. And so there's there's got to be other ways to do it. I, I understand. So after, you know, a- after the book project ends – because I know you've had a fairly varied uh, career path – what do you move on to at that point? Well, I mean, you're, you don't move on to it. You do it as well because, you know, when you've got an illustration project like a children's book, it can be sort of two years of your life, sure. but it's not every day, all day. So I started doing other things as well as, you know, for variety, but also to supplement income. Um, so obviously I had my graphic design training mm-hmm. that I was using at the same time as well. So I did a lot of, um, book cover designs and things. I worked for publishers as a designer as well as an illustrator. Mm-hmm. Um, I got really kind of interested in web design. So when the when I was at uni, the internet didn't exist, believe it or not. Well, if it did, it was in you know someone's basement. It didn't. It wasn't a public access kind uh, of thing. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm in the same boat <laughs> as you. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and technologies were very new. We only got Mac computers into the university in the final year. So. Um, luckily for me, my dad has always been very computer focused and he, you know, he had a Commodore pet in the seventies and he was really into, yeah, museum piece. And so I used to code (laughs) basic for him. Um, so I was kind of computer savvy even before computers were a thing. Mm -hmm. And so when the internet kind of came out, I taught myself how to code in HTML. And then when CSS was added onto that, I added that. So I started doing, you know, kind of websites for people. Um, so I actually built a website for Richard E. Grant, who is, um, one of my favorite actors. He's an English actor Mm -hmm. who's been in a lot of American, um, movies, but he's, he's a British actor who's, I love. And, um, so I built him a website and, you know, I kind of, that was a, something that I, I would add for my branding clients. And so I started doing a lot of logo design and branding work, and then I could add websites and things onto the, um, onto the package, um, as well as doing illustrations, illustrative logos and stuff. And I started to teach at university a little bit, and I also went into further study. So I did my master's in in illustration, basically. So mm-hmm. it was it's all about production design for film. So I collaborated with a an author called Cam Rogers, and we um, basically wrote a film script, and then I designed all of the sets and all the costumes and all that for that um, hypothetical film, and that was my master's um, project, um, and then. Yeah, so all of these things kind of coalesced. I started teaching a lot more because I found that 
you know, articulating why you were doing things. It was really useful for me to have to explain to somebody else why I was doing a certain thing. Um, so teaching I really found quite rewarding. And I also started to write books because I was working for publishers so much that, you know, I was doing the pictures, I was doing the illustrations. It just made sense that I wrote the words as well. Sure. So I wrote a textbook called Looking Better in Print, which was for tertiary students and it was all about, you know, turning and guides and you know, <laughs> um, just in the early days of InDesign, kind of how to uh-huh. how to lay things out on the computer and, and how to how to integrate sort of typography and illustration with your graphic design. So everything, all the avenues I pursued all kind of didn't make sense at the time, but then a little while later down the path, you'd sort of say, oh, now that's why I can do, do this part and this part. Mm-hmm. It makes me quite unique because – no one else has that sort of particular set of skills or experiences. How, how did you start piecing those puzzle pieces together for you? I think that there's a creative process called divergent and convergent thinking. Mm-hmm. So divergent is where you throw the net wide and anything is possible. Sure. And so you kind of, you know, every this is where brainstorming is meant to come in and, and you do all these kind of ideas and then you have to switch to a convergent process, which is where you start to evaluate and sift through until you narrow it down to the, the thing you're actually trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And I, I think unwilling, unknowingly, my career path has been like that. So at the, the very beginning, it was just all about if this opportunity presented itself, I would probably say yes. If I was interested in something, I would say yes. If somebody got me excited about an idea, I would say yes. If I discovered a new artist or something, I would follow that wholeheartedly. So the first you know, 20 years, say, of my career, I would say was a divergent process where I was just saying yes to everything and, and running down any kind of trail or rabbit warren that would take my fancy. Sure. And then after a while, I would get frustrated with that because I'm like, well, everyone else has this career path and everyone else seems to know where they're going and everybody else seems to be building on something. And so I started to consciously say, well, you know, why am I doing this? What is the opportunity cost of saying yes to one thing? It Mm. means no to another. And it's something I still struggle with that I just overcommit and say yes to too many things. And I have to keep bringing it back to, you know, yes, there are a thousand wonderful ideas or wonderful things you could do, but there's got to be some sort of guiding principle that that gets you to say yes or no, not just whether it sounds good. Sure. (laughs) and so sort of the last probably 10 years of my career has been about that process. It's been about trying to be in charge of where the bus is going as opposed to just, you know, having a good time. Going along for the following. ride. and Going along for the ride, yeah. And getting off at every seen. stop to see what's new. Yeah, it's like, oh, let's go down this street. That looks interesting. And then you end up miles away from where you're actually supposed to be heading to. So I'm trying to get a bit more conscious about steering that. But um. But that said, every time you, you get to a new crest of a hill and you're you know, unlocking new kind of potential and exciting possibilities in your life, new opportunities come at you. And so you go, here we go again. <laughs> I want to go I want to go tobogganing down the side of this hill and that will undo everything I've just done and worked for <laughs> climbing this hill. So, yeah, it's still very much trying to control my inner child and keep her on track and <laughs> be sensible <laughs> instead of just going, Wee! This looks funny. Let's do this for three years. Well, I mean, yes. Well, I have a question about that. Do you, because I know you do a lot of side projects. Are those kind of your, your way of tobogganing down the hill of, well, this looks fun and it's low risk. It's not going to divert me. Yeah. I mean, that's how they, they start like that, but every side project has started as, as being, oh, this looks fun or this looks like a good new idea. But fairly quickly, I'm now having to say, you know, you either you either give this your everything or you give it your nothing. And there's quite a few things I've had to put on the back burner that are very painful for me mm-hmm. to just ignore. But just for the sake of, you know, giving the best to whatever I've got going on at the moment, I just haven't got the time and the energy to do all of the things all of the time. So it's it's one of the toughest things I struggle with is taking these pretty good ideas and just putting them over here for a bit so that I can give a hundred percent to this amazing idea that is the thing I've decided I'm going to focus on for the next three to five years. So it's, I guess that's maturity isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> is that I can have that, 
you know, self-awareness to just say, this is now what's important to me. I'm going to, yeah, it's like, you know, when you're old enough to say no to your friends, do you want to go out drinking beer? Because, you know, you've got to get up and get married in the morning. It's like <laughs> I'm prioritizing something over something else that sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't recommend going uh, and getting married um, extremely hungover. It probably is not going to yeah, a great way exactly. to start that, that's, that off. That's experienced, whereas you've got to go and do it once to find out that it probably wasn't a good idea. Yeah, so I think I'm in the in the sensible phase of enjoying my life moderately, which is to just say, look, you're not going to get any sleep if you do this and this. Sure. So pick pick one and do it for a while, and then the other one will still be there to pick up in a bit if that is going to be the new thing to do. So, yeah, just being, being a bit more conscious and mindful about how I spend my time because – I don't know, somehow when you're younger, you have a lot more time and energy, whereas now it seems to be a very finite resource. <laughs> uh, I would completely agree with you there. It is definitely a finite resource. Yes. I, I wanted to ask you, because I know you have your, your, your doctorate as well. How does that, mm-hmm. how does that work? Because in the United States, <laughs> you know, it's a very different program. It's at least for, I mean, you can get doctorates, obviously. And I think there are a few universities that have PhDs in fine arts and things like that, but very few. And they're kind of theoretical degrees. People can't see me doing air quotes, so I don't know why I just did that. <laughs> you can see me. <laughs> I can see you doing air quotes, yes. and they are absolutely essential in this state. Um, no, I'm I'm unusual. I mean, PhDs are very much, as you say, they're theoretical. It's all about finding new knowledge and then synthesizing that into some 70,000 word document that maybe four people will ever read. That's <laughs> that, that model is the same here. Um, but we have a couple of programs that are known as professional doctorates. And so they are run by art colleges. So the one I went to was Griffith university in Queensland. Mm-hmm. Um, and your thesis. So whilst a PhD thesis is all a written document, a creative or visual arts doctorate, a thesis is a combination of a body of work plus an exegesis. So an exegesis or exegetical writing is where you're writing to the work and then the combination of the visual, you know, like an exhibition or a book or a play or whatever your kind of visual output is in combination with the exegesis is what's called the thesis and that's how it's examined at doctoral level. That sounds painful. Fairly painful. But the good news is because I did such a huge exhibition and such a large amount of visual work, I was able to effectively write what I described lovingly as a pamphlet. <laughs> so my, <laughs> my exegetical writing was very short. It was only, I think, twenty or 30,000 words. I mean, you know, only the thing was ring-bound. Only, yeah, it's short. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not a book. It's like a proper, a proper PhD, air quotes. Um, is a is a very major piece Eight, of writing. Whereas mine was just <laughs> yeah, that's right. Whereas mine was just a pamphlet which accompanied <laughs> a huge body of visual work. So as an artist, I just got to have fun and make stuff, and then I just had to write about it at the end. And da da, mm. Doctor Fowler. So <laughs> it's it's mine was a lot more fun and a lot less painful than you know, a proper PhD, but I get to be called doctor anyway. Um, but the fact is it is unusual here as well. I mean, there's only uh, Dr. Barry Spencer, who some of you might follow as specular type on Instagram. He's mm-hmm. the only other person in Australia that I know of with a doctorate in typography. So the pair of us get to hang. Mind you, I have two students that I'm supervising at the moment, Libby Reed and David Sargent, are both amazing type and lettering artists who are both going to be doctors at some point. Mm-hmm. So then we will double our numbers in this country. I mean, there may be more, but I certainly, um, <laughs> they're not, you know, they, they're not kind of in my radar. And, and if they, if you're out there listening and you've got a doctorate in typography, I'd love to hear from you because, you know, it gets very difficult come examination time to find anybody who's got the right level of expertise to mm-hmm. actually assess these students. So, you know, my doctoral students are going to have a hard time finding examiners that aren't me and Barry. <laughs> <laughs> That's either very good for them or very bad for them. <laughs> so, so, you know, while, while you're working on your doctorate, it, it, it's, 
if I remember correctly, that's about that's when you kind of started on the tactile typography stuff with that. How, Absolutely. How did yeah. that part of it come about? Well, the, the, one of those good ideas that I was talking about that I've had to put in on the back burner is was my initial PhD project. So I wanted to do creativity research, and it was all about you know how do people maintain a creative practice when they're too busy and all these kinds of things. So that was my project initially and I actually got two years down the track on that project and then I actually got I had a meeting with um the sort of head academic at the time of in charge of all the research students and he he saw what I'd written so far and and I was getting ready for a process called confirmation so confirmation is like a partway checking mm -hmm. throughout your process to make sure that you're on track and you actually have to do a presentation in front of a fairly stern tough audience you know mm -hmm. who who are very rigorous and check that you're on track. And so I was about to do this process and he called me into his office and he was just like, uh, uh, this is not, you know, because there was a foundation in education needed and there was a foundation in psychology needed for this project. He said that unless you're prepared to do an undergrad in education and an undergrad in psychology, there's no way you can continue with this project as your PhD research. Mm -hmm. It's not in your wheelhouse. You know, it's too many steps removed from all of your, masters and undergraduate research so as a standard graphic designer slash illustrator i had to bring it back to my perceived area of expertise mm -hmm. so even though it was a really good project he said look it's a great commercial project and you should probably write a book but you shouldn't submit this as your phd because you when you're interrogated on these areas that are not necessarily your expertise he was worried that i was going to fall over so whilst that was devastating advice at the time, he couldn't have been more right and I couldn't have been more grateful for that advice then because it made me stop and look back on where I've been so far and just go, all right, let's bring it back to graphic design and illustration. And so I really started to experiment with illustrative graphic design. And mm -hmm. so that, of course, led to playing with typography but using those sort of craft materials and techniques that I'd been learning as a child growing up mm -hmm. so it really that was when everything came kind of full circle and every little side road and wandering off the beaten track that i'd ever done to this point it all started to kind of come together into a, a, a cohesive project and the whole point of phd research is you're meant to go into uncharted territory you're meant to go and find a niche sure. that nobody has covered already so masters honors you know, you can kind of do similar projects, but PhD, you've got to go out there and, and pioneer. And so I really had to look long and hard to find something that people hadn't already gone through. And so tactile typography, I actually Googled it at the time that I kind of came up with the terminology and it mm -hmm. just didn't exist on the internet. Nobody had used that term at all. And, you know, thankfully, because my work has become fairly widely spread people are now starting to use that terminology so you'll, if you google tactile topography or look up the tag on instagram you'll see that other artists and practitioners are now starting to do a similar type of work and so it's you know that's really gratifying from a phd point of view because that's what you're supposed to do you're supposed to pave the way start a new thing and then having other people adopt and take up that new thing is you know it's, it's a really kind of a rewarding process mm -hmm. So, so with that, you know, like you said, there's a lot of other people who have kind of built off that. You've got like Daniel Evans and um, yeah. I, I don't know if you know Inon Avital. He does a thing called Hebrew Type where it's... I do. I love his work. Yeah. And you've got Lydia Cukes and you've got Becca mm -hmm. Clarkson and you've got Joe Alessio. You know, a lot of these guys that I'm now kind of, you know, sort of vaguely friends with on social media or I've luckily met in person a couple of those guys... Absolutely. They're all building off the work that um, I kind of did. And they might have been doing that, but we may, we maybe didn't have a way to describe it. And sure. certainly, you know, things that Yulia, Yulia Brodskaya and Evelyn Kazakoff and Marikor Marikar, those guys were already doing something along those lines, but nobody ever described it as tactile topography before. So mm. now it's it's really nice that we all get to kind of, you know, it, it's a kind of a niche now and we get to be peers and we get to kind of look at each other's work and I know that Lydia Cukes did a um her master's thesis and referenced a lot of my work mm -hmm. and, and she really said that it helped validate the stuff that she was doing in an academic sense um as well as it being something that you know we're all getting employed to do so Becca Clarkson's work she's 
got an agent and she's doing amazing stuff now. And so, you know, that as a just a, a collective group of artists is just so rewarding. And I'm really proud to be a part of that. That's a really enjoyable end result that I had no idea would be, you know, an outcome of this process. But mm-hmm. um, certainly for me, it just was about exploring with the materials. And so it's only just been fate that has, has hit upon the fact that the string and nails thing that I do is very popular. So a lot of people have requested that and that's formed a major part of my commercial work now. But the initial thing for me was just I love typography and I love craft materials. You know, I mean, who doesn't love a good craft? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm never happier than when I'm just sitting there just playing with the scissors and paper and sticky tape and just seeing what I can make. And so, you know, the fact that I've been able to turn this into a commercial enterprise and that, you know, traditional graphic design is benefiting from the addition of making things out of tactile materials now, mm. that's been just such a really a really lovely outcome of this process. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I know, and, and I wasn't able to catch all of your, your talk at Creative South, but, you know, kind of the theme of it was, this is what I do, this isn't what defines me. You know, mm. for a lot of artists and a lot of designers and all, they have a hard time separating that. How were you able to kind of separate those two things? Well, I guess, I mean, if you're, if you know from a three-year-old that you want to be a paleontologist and you're <laughs> going to devote your life to being a paleontologist, then that becomes your identity because that's the one thing you do. I mean, I say that about child prodigy, you know, violinists or something. They just or if you're a swimmer or something, you start as a kid, you don't know life sure. without being this thing is defined you. So there's, there's the group of people that, you know, they know what they want to be from three. They do that all the way through. They become the world's leading expert at that thing. There's no way they can separate their identity from that thing. They are a violinist or whatever it is. But for those of us that are creative and confused <laughs> and that, and I that fall into that category. There you go. Most of the people I know fall into that category um, is that we are working it out as we go. And so because that thing changes or because you no longer, you know, I no longer call myself an illustrator, even though I was an illustrator commercially and professionally for 13 years, Mm -hmm. I don't illustrate anymore. So to, to be defined by something that you then stop doing is quite you know, it can be quite damaging to your psyche because who am I all of a sudden? I don't exist. Sure. And so, you know, finding a way to separate who you are from what you do, I think is actually essential. Otherwise, you, you're not going to want to give up something even though it's probably done its time. You know, it might be time to let that thing go, but it's much harder to do that if it's inexorably linked with who you are. And so I think it all comes down to a creative identity. So in the end, you can describe yourself as a creative person Mm -hmm. who is currently engaged in these particular outputs. But if you're, if you're too wedded to what those outputs are, if that's a descriptor of who you are, then that's a real issue. I heard um, there's been some research that fascinates me about men in particular, that when they have a, um, you know, if they have a career path that that defines them and then they retire, Mm -hmm. apparently they actually die quite quickly because you know, if you're just a guy on a, you're an old guy on a beach and you used to be CEO of a particular company or whatever, and that was your definition, when that stops, you stop. And sure. whereas they say that a lot of, you know, women in particular, because they're busy and they're a grandmother and they do this and they do that, if they retire from their job, then it's just one less thing that they're doing and they can devote more time to the grandkids or whatever it is. But it's a real kind of, and I'm talking obviously traditional career paths. This is right. our grandparents' age when, you know, when the male would, traditionally go and do a particular role that defined him, whereas the the female tended to stay home and manage a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes, you know, an identity thing. Whereas now obviously those gender roles are mixed up and career paths are not guaranteed and there's no gold watch at the end of it. All of that stuff <laughs> is changing. It it means that, you know, from an identity point of view, we have to be much more sort of nimble and self aware because you can't let that external thing define you you have to define yourself and then you have a series of activities that feed into that gotcha so you know for people who struggle with that what what do you how do you how, what would you say to them 
Well, the example I gave in my Creative South presentation was I actually drew a spiral shape that went through, it sort of intersected a straight line at several points. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine you start off in that spiral in the centre and you start walking around, as you kind of pass over that line, that vertical line at different points, you start to realise that, oh, I'm back here again. And so you might be back here at a different part of your life. You might have moved on in time. You might have moved on in experience. But you keep coming back to similar things where you realise, I've been here before but just in a different time and place. Sure. Those, those moments you need to start, you know, kind of asking yourself, why am I drawn back here? Why do I keep coming back to working with animals? Or why do I keep coming back to being an artist? Or why do I keep coming back to, you know, um, my faith? Or, you know, there's going to be something that kind of keeps coming up as a recurring theme for you. And I think that's where the clue lies, that you actually, you might not know what that is when you start out on your journey, but after you've passed through it a couple of times, you start to realize that I'm back here again and that's that's a meaningful moment for me. And so that is about that picking up that thread of your life as you go through. And so Simon Sinek has written a book called Start With Why, mm-hmm. because as, you know, your, your career path when you start thinking as a child and then a teenager and then you go to university, it's all about the what. Right. You know, you're all about what am I going to do and what is my job title and what's going to make me money and how am I going to make money and how am I going to do that and do I have to move town or state? Do I have to go to this university? It's all about the the what and the how and it's not about the why. And I think if you bring it back to that first question of, you know, why am I doing any of this? What is what's the driving force behind it as opposed to looking then at the outcomes. And so I think if you don't know what your thread is now, you can turn around and look back at your life and start to see if there's any recurring themes or recurring kind of interests or recurring moments or driving factors or, or looking at when you felt, you know, most lit up that you really were enjoying something and being pulled towards it as, a, as opposed to pushing yourself towards something. Right. Um, I think that's, that's the golden thread that you need to look for. And then all of a sudden, once you know what that is, it helps you in the future. It's there already. You just need to follow it and kind of hold on to that and go in the direction that's going to take you past that thread more often instead of just randomly kind of happening upon it. Sure. Well, and so that ties you know, back into the kind of continuing the, evolving thing. Right. Well, and that ties back into what you were talking about with the divergent and convergent thinking as well it's you you can those two kind of mirror each other absolutely and you've got to um there's a what's the set the saying it's easier to change course when you're in motion Mm -hmm. you know so you kind of have to you don't know what the answer is at the the beginning but you've just got to go in the direction that seems most logical to you at the time and so that those first steps might be 20 years long where you're just like going in a direction because you don't know what else to do but you've got to just start moving and then you can start to change course and change direction and pivot and look at, you know, going left didn't work, but going right does, you know, metaphorically. So it, it's all about starting moving and, and then just changing course as you go. And then you'll start to realize patterns that are forming, things that are working, things that don't work. And so for some people, they work that out very quickly. And for others, you know, me, I'm only just working it out now. And it's, and it's so rewarding when you do that because it makes you realize that some of the things that you might have thought were a waste of time actually mm-hmm. make a lot more sense in hindsight. You've got to kind of go through them to realize what the lessons were that they were teaching you. Right. So, you know, kind of getting back to the working things out and, and when you were working on your doctorate, you know, the the early stuff that you started with, are you finding your way back to that now? Um, I guess, I mean, the original always the original research and always the original question for me was, you know, how does a person, what's a person's creative flame and how do you keep that alight? And so initially for me, it was looking at it from my point of view and now probably in more recent times, now that I've kind of worked it out for me (laughs) is now going back and helping other people um, work out what it is for them because it's that, it's that constant battle that we have between trying to be a creative person with a creative output and do things that are creatively rewarding mm-hmm. versus, you know, having a job and paying the bills. Sure. And what I find in a sort of a, 
a more often recurring case, which is you know heartbreaking, is that people replace one with the other. And so they somehow feel that in order to be creative, you have to be broke or in order to, you know, get married, have kids, raise a family and have a mortgage, you have to not be creative. You have to make a sensible life for yourself. And so for me, it's about that constant search for something that is, is going to pay the bills, but also something that is going to fuel your creative fire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether that is the side project or whether that is the multiple streams of income or whether that is working hard now so you don't have to work hard later kind of passive income thing. You know, these are all interesting emerging career paths that I, I follow with interest and I dabble in myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm certainly, certainly when I started my PhD research, I was in the situation of having a full-time job that took, if I allowed it, it would take all of my creative energy and there would be no time for me to make anything that the world cared about. Um, and so that's why the initial project that I started off with my PhD research was to, you know, work out how you can be creative all the time. So the project was actually called Creativity Fitness. It's like, how do you, how do you maintain a creative output when you've got, you know, a 70 hour work week to deal with as well. Right. Um, and then once the the tactile topography stuff kind of took over, then that was kind of my answer. It's like, well, I'm just going to behave like an artist (laughs) in my (laughs) spare time. (laughs) And then eventually people started paying me for those things. But the first 30 pieces that I did was just me having fun in and around my day job. You know, I mean, that's, that's how it started. And so now it's, it's emerging and turning into something that, you know, could eventually pay the bills. But at the time it was just creative play, but, creative play in a time when you're not you haven't got the time you haven't got the energy you haven't got the mental bandwidth but you're still forcing yourself to kind of experiment and steal those little bits of time in and around your day job that you can actually be creative and now for me it's about teaching other people how to do that as well as still maintaining a creative practice as well as still maintaining my job (laughs) well speaking of the you know you you mentioned the name creative fitness i know you know through doing research for this, you know, you, you've announced on your website that you've got a book coming out about that. Yes. So that's, that's one of those projects that is, is kind of humming along. And if I devoted full time to it, then I could get it finished. But it's kind of, it's one of those things that, um, I've been talking about and helping people (laughs) with, but it's kind of got to go on the back burner until, um, you know, maybe my typism project is a little further along the track because, I've actually been speaking to people and they're saying, you know, this stuff is really useful, but at the moment there's a community of people who really need your time and energy. And so the creativity fitness book has been put on is one of those things that's been put on the back burner in favor of, um, you know, the typism project Mm -hmm. until that's sort of at a sustainable level where, you know, I can step away from it a little bit and and work on it. But it's certainly, it's, it's probably 80% written as a book. Um, and now I think it's time to turn it into a course because it's all about, the theory's in place, and now it's all about getting exercises and working people through those exercises. So I think I'll write a course and then put like a, a beta testing group through there and get their results, and then that, that will finish the book because their results will be the final kind of case studies for the book project. But um, everyone I've spoken to about it gets a lot of value out of it, and it's certainly something that I you know, practice on a daily basis and I teach to my students. Um, but, yeah, I think it'll be very exciting when the book comes out that it'll make it more accessible to a wider audience. Well, I mean, it sounds like it would be a great tool to help people deal with burnout as well and to, to avoid burnout. Um, Absolutely. You know, through talking just now through talking to you about it, that that's exactly what was running through my head is, you know, the, those exercises and things that you were kind of giving examples of, you know, while they, in some ways they add stress, but in a good way, but it helps you Absolutely. helps your yeah. brain work in different functions to work out creative problems and avoid that burnout and things like that. Yeah. My argument is basically that um, the creative muscle or creativity itself is, is like a muscle. And so, you know, we need to keep it fit. We need to keep it exercised. If you just let it atrophy, it's like if you're a marathon runner, but you sit on the couch for six months, you're not going to be able to get up the next day and run a marathon at that level that you were running at. So you've got to get out there and maintain a level of basic fitness so that when it comes time to actually do a project or something, you're not going to 
pull a psychic hamstring. I don't want to labor the metaphor, but you know, really, <laughs> you think of your creativity like a muscle, treat it like that. So that means daily stretching, daily exercises. If you have a big project coming up, you get in training for it, you condition it for that process. Um, and that means that, you know, by maintaining a level of creativity fitness, it doesn't matter that I don't have time and I have a, a tiring day job. I'd be tired anyway. If I came home and did creativity projects or if I came home and just drank whiskey and watched Netflix, either way I would be tired. But one would be much <laughs> less satisfying than the other. So it's – All right. Know, it depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good thing about what I do is I get to watch Netflix, drink whiskey, and be creative all at the same time. <laughs> even better. Um, <laughs> even maybe, better. Maybe not the, the days idea, where you're hammering you know, with nails. <laughs> Well, no, I'm pretty good now. I can. I, I've got a technique that um doesn't matter how drunk I get, I can pretty much avoid hitting myself on the finger. So well, that's good. <laughs> I'm, I've hammered in so many nails in my life now that I'm pretty done. That that muscle memory is in place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my fingers know where that hammer is at all times, even whether I'm conscious or not. So <laughs> I I haven't hit myself in about two years. So I'm I'm. I'm touching wood. <laughs> that, that's a pretty good record. Now I've got I've got a technique down pat now, so it's good. Um, but you know, it's it's all about just being creative, even though the conditions aren't right, even though the conditions don't support it. That is such a easy way to procrastinate is to say I'm too tired, or I'm too busy, or I've got other things that are more important. This is how the majority of the planet that wants to somehow one day someday which we all know is not a day of the week someday do that creative project someday get that thing off the ground but they have a reason or an excuse not to um we all have that reason or excuse not to we we're all too busy we're all too tired but there are still techniques and methods that mean that you can steal time throughout the day that you can chip away you know eat that elephant one bite at a time and get it done even though you haven't got the time or energy and so i'm living proof of that i mean i've got crazy day job and I still manage to have you know a creative output that rivals kind of most standard practicing artists and so that's something that I've written about in the book and I'm, I'm trying to kind of package in a way that now that I've experimented on myself I can actually kind of make that a useful resource for other people how, how do you find that time how do you make time to do all these little things and you know you've, you've got a husband and all that stuff as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sundays are his day. We get to do what he wants on a Sunday. Um, we we talk about finding time as if it's there. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, everybody has the same twenty four hours. To look for it. That's right. We all have the same time as Beyonce. Um, my argument is that you can't find it. You have to steal it. And so I lie and cheat my way through the day. And I steal that time back from everybody who's trying to steal it from me. Um, so my first example is that in the mornings, we all drink coffee, right? You either drink coffee or you have tea or you have some kind of morning ritual that involves some kind of you know, consuming food or liquid. And so for me, it's coffee. And sure. so the amount of time that it takes to go to the coffee shop, order the coffee, make, have the coffee made, sit there and drink it, um, that for me is a sacred ritual. And it takes about 20 minutes. And it doesn't matter where it happens. I stop off at the worst, dingiest little truck stops on my way to work sometimes. <laughs> I don't care. It doesn't have to be as beautiful as Iron Bank in <laughs> Columbus, Georgia, or wherever it is that we, you know, these beautiful coffee shops, the beautiful, trendy, hipster coffee shops. All it has to be is somewhere that makes me coffee. And then I have my notebook with me at all times. And so that sacred ritual of of getting the coffee in the morning is when I do my morning pages. Mm -hmm. And so that's a tool or a technique um, that Julia Cameron writes about in her book, The Artist's Way. And it's basically where you do a brain dump. So all of the chatter, chatter, monkey mind stuff that gets in the way and stops you being clear, focused and productive. Um, I just dump that out onto the page every morning. So that mm -hmm. 20 minute process clears out my brain. And that also builds up creativity fitness because it means that I get to write a thousand words every morning. And so it means that writing becomes a lot more easy because you've got that muscle memory, as you say, and, and you're able to just kind of, you know, not procrastinate and worry about it and think about what you're doing. You know, just do it. It's just a ritual. It's a habit. And then throughout the day, I try at least on two to three other occasions to steal more time. Um, 
so in my day job, I have four people looking at my calendar. Can you believe this? So I cannot, (laughs) I haven't got so much wriggle room, (laughs) but you know, if there's a meeting and I've got it scheduled for an hour and it finishes half an hour early, instead of going back to work half an hour early, then I, I look at that as, you know, God given time. I say, thank you universe for giving me the spare 30 minutes. And then I have a creative project that's on the go and I'll break it down into 20 minute increments. And so it means that, oh, I've got 20 minutes spare here. This is where I get to do point A. And then it might be that, you know, I go and meet my husband after work and we, he's going to go to the hairdressers or something like that. So I get to sit for 20 minutes and wait whilst he's getting his hair cut. Mm-hmm. That's the next point on my creative list. And then it might be that I do some more stuff. I might stop off at a coffee shop on the way home or I might just do some stuff. It's very dangerous when I get home, though. The couch is very appealing. Um, <laughs> so I have to make sure that, you know, I've, I've kind of chipped off a couple of, of to-do list items on that major project. But, yeah, if you try and find enough time to get a major project done, you will never do it. Whereas if you break a major project down into 27 20-minute tasks and then you carry them around in a notebook, I can easily knock off three 20-minute sections in a day, and that means I've done an hour's work without anybody noticing on my creative project. And so by the end of the week, you can get at least seven to ten hours done Mm -hmm. on this big project. Um, Whereas if you sort of wait for this perfect amount of time in the perfect scenario and the perfect situation where all your jobs are done and all the kids are out or asleep or whatever it is and you're going to have – magically the seven hours clear on a Saturday to do this project. <laughs> it never, ever, ever works that way. Everything always, you know, conspires to disrupt it. So I've just given up on trying to have that perfect time to do the perfect project. I just shoehorn it into my busy day 20 minutes at a time and stuff gets done. What's What's your advice for someone who's kind of let that muscle atrophy and the um, I don't know if you've heard the term couch to 5k before. Um, for, no. uh, so it's for, and I am not a subscriber of this, but it's for runners who, or people who want to get into running, but just have been inactive and kind of sedentary for a while. It's so it's couch to a five kilometer race. So it's yeah, right. tiered it's workout to build, your, yeah, to yeah, build yourself absolutely. up. Well, for me, it definitely would be habit stacking. So look at a ritual that you already do. So for a lot of parents, it might be that, you know, 20-minute wait in the car to pick up the kids from school at the end of the day. I I see a lot of rows of cars where parents are waiting. Um, So instead of scrolling through Facebook or just staring off into space, that would be the opportunity to be prepared at any point in the day to just capitalize on that 20 minutes of free time. So I would always carry a notebook around with me. So I always have a pen and I always have a um, like a spiral-bound plane notebook with a hardcover that sits in my bag all the time so that if you're ever gifted those 20 minutes throughout the day that's the time to do it but if if that's too kind of haphazard I think the morning coffee ritual is a perfect one because you don't have control over the middle of the day but we tend to have control over the beginning and the ends and the ends we're very tired it's very easy just to let it go so if you always always kind of aim to start the day right I think the coffee shop morning pages ritual is the best way to start building that that creativity fitness. And I get my students to do that, you know, commit to nothing else but 20 minutes, three A4 pages of longhand writing and just brain dump anything. You Just whatever your brain is going blah, 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 blah at the time, write that down, get it on paper. Don't read it. Don't worry about punctuation, spelling, write in whatever language you think in, you know, don't, it's not, academic writing at all it's literally trying to get the words out of your head mm-hmm. because after a page and a half of whinging <laughs> oh, why did he say that and oh my friend and my me my husband should do that and why did he do that and what are we gonna have for dinner and what? once all that stuff is out that's usually about a page and a half and then you've got a page and a half of just continuous stream of consciousness and for me often that's where the good stuff happens now like cleaning out any closet You might take a long time to sort through the stuff, but once it's cleared out, you can get the, you know, the small pile of stuff away pretty quickly and get into the the kind of the clear-headed thinking quite quickly. And so making a commitment to just 20 minutes of writing every morning I think is a really good start. And even if you're not a writer, if you're an artist or a painter or a musician, the process of still communicating with your subconscious in that way 
is a very quick shortcut to your idea source. So your subconscious mind is where the ideas have been percolating away anyway. You just need to get a direct line or access to it. And so morning pages is a pretty reliable way to do that for most people, no matter what your eventual creative output. As someone who has a enough of a fear of writing that I started a podcast to avoid a way to write a blog, how, do, how does someone get into writing? To Because uh, it's something I'm actually interested in, but I just – I've got that mental block that just – Yeah. Like piece of paper in front enough. of me and I freak out. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, the trick with the continuous stream of consciousness is to not think about it. So when I get my students to do it, the first couple of times it is very painful. It's like getting a person to do sit-ups when they've never done sit-ups. They know (laughs) they need to do them, but they look terrible. They feel terrible. You get no noticeable result. You're like, I I just look like a flappy whale here on the ground (laughs) flailing my arms around. It's really ugly. So that's why you need to do it with nobody watching because mentally it's the equivalent of that. All of the stuff you're going to write for the first month is just going to be just rubbish. And often with my students, I just say, look, even if you're right, if you write down blah, 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 I don't know what to write. This is a stupid exercise. My teacher is an idiot. My feet are cold. You know, it doesn't (laughs) matter what you write. All that matters is that you are writing something. And the idea is to write without stopping. Mm -hmm. And that is a lot harder than you realize because you you want to think about what you're writing. And that's the issue. Your conscious brain getting in the way is the problem. Your mm-hmm. conscious mind is the thing that's saying, I can't do this. I'm not a writer. I started a podcast for this very reason. Why am I writing? This is a stupid process. But literally, once you've done that for a page and a half, you get sick of hearing it and you stop doing it. It's it's the best way to clear the sort of conscious mind. And then that gives you access to your subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. And the subconscious mind is there and you think that you can think a way to a you know, a solution to a problem. But often when that solution to a problem just comes to you in the middle of the night, that's because you're finally quiet enough that your subconscious can say, right, you stopped whinging. Here's the thing I wanted to tell you. So morning pages, the point of it is not to write the point of it is to communicate with your subconscious in a clear and useful way. And so just you just got to push through. All of the stuff that you said just then, like I am scared of writing but I like writing, I started a podcast to avoid writing, those are the kinds of things you need to write down. Mm-hmm. And then once you get through those things, you'll get to the more meaningful stuff which your subconscious has been trying to give you all along. Awesome. Well, we're kind of wrapping up our time here. What exciting um, is coming down the pike for you? Well, as I spoke about in um, my Creative South talk, the typism community is something that I've been building up slowly Mm -hmm. since 2013. We've had two conferences and I've got a third one in the pipeline for October this year. So I'll start thinking about that very soon. Um, In January this year, I drove around Australia with my husband and we went and met with nine amazing, well, actually 10 amazing type and lettering artists. And we just happen to have three cameras with us. So we filmed them, you know, looking over their shoulder, showing us what they do. And so I'm editing those videos right now with the help of two of my um, friends. And we're kind of putting all that together as an online summit. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that in May sometime we'll have all of those videos available online. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, Skillshare, but a, a kind of a, a curated, edited, more focused, um, <laughs> more focused, more structured. Yeah, I mean, it's very easy to get lost in there, and the quality is very patchy. Whereas, you know, these are all kind of very high quality, but also very curated in in terms of if you start if you start at number one with Eliza's and you work your way through and end up with kind of Aurelie's more complex um, vectoring stuff by the end, mm-hmm. you'll have some different techniques to try. We we talked to Matt Vergottis, we talked to Libby Reed. Lots of people doing calligraphy, hand lettering, brush lettering, how to refine the process. Wayne Thompson shows us through his refining process. So it's very exciting for me to kind of just be visiting those studios but then also editing the videos and I'm really excited about how they're turning out now and so I can't wait to share them with everybody because the main problem with the conference is that it means that 300 Australians get to go to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I've got 70,000 people on Instagram who are – interested in you know what typism has to offer but can't necessarily make it to an in-person conference so i'm hoping that the summit provides them with um you know a kind of a way to access 
the stuff that we do, but without having to travel. Um, and also we'll be doing a hand lettering challenge sort of off the back of that once that's launched. So there's a lot in the pipeline in terms of the typism brand and what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And that's taking up a lot of my spare stolen 20 minutes throughout <laughs> the day at the moment. <laughs> I can imagine. So where can people find you online? Well, I am Dominique underscore Faller on Instagram and Twitter and also typism is if you're in any way, shape or form interested in lettering, either, you know, digital or um, analog, if you get onto Instagram and, and follow along with what we're doing at typism, then you'll have a lot of inspiration and a lot of stuff going on. Awesome. Dominique, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat with me. And it was a pleasure meeting you, however briefly, at Creative South. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you very much, Jason, for having me on. It was, it was an honor and a privilege. And yes, nice to meet you in the street as we did. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would be remiss. My wife told me to tell you hello. <laughs> yes. And hello to her as well. She's lovely. <laughs> thank you. So we end every podcast by saying, go out and hug some necks, which since you've been to Creative South, you, you've met Mike, you kind of know. Mike gave me a bear hug around my neck. Yes, I have been strangled by the the (laughs) peanut-eating man himself. (laughs) But it's a very gentle strangling. (laughs) He's he's the most wonderful gentle giant. I've met so many lovely gentle giants at at Creative South. I don't know what they feed you over there, but you guys are huge. Like The guys from the Master of One podcast, I think one of those guys was about seven foot eight. I don't know. He's he's actually six foot eight. I asked. <laughs> wow, I must That's be shrinking. No, just, lots, of, lots of gentle giants. I, I met um, Aaron Draplin as well. He's a mm-hmm. big gentle giant. So there's a lot of amazing guys to meet at um, Creative South, and I hugged every single one of them. So it was a it was a wonderful, wonderful event. I'm going to try my hardest to get back next year. I really am. Well, we look forward to seeing you then. Fantastic. Thank you, Jason. All right. Thank you. You can find out more about Dominique on Twitter at Dominique underscore Falla. And be sure to check out the links in the show notes for more ways to keep up with her. You can keep up with the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Creative SO Pod and follow Creative South on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creative South GA over at CreativeSouth.com. And I'm at Jay Frostholm on Dribble, Twitter, and Instagram. Visit jackprince.com and get 25% off all orders over $25 when you use promo code CREATESOUTH17 at checkout. For a limited time, new Skillshare customers can get their first three months for just 99 cents to get unlimited access to thousands of classes when you sign up at Skillshare.com using promo code CREATIVESOUTH. What are you waiting for? Start learning today. And remember, if you like the show, help support us over at patreon.com slash CREATIVESOUTH. And if you like the Creative South podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. Rate us and leave a review. This helps more people find the podcast and allows us to keep getting awesome guests. Now go out and hug some necks.